Great, if you are not there already, great. If you could turn open to Psalm 146. We are continuing in our series this summer, Summer in the Psalms, and uh, Pastor Ted is away uh, with some uh, well-deserved rest for the next few weeks, and so we're going to be continuing in uh, this series. There's going to be different people who are going to be preaching on different psalms. And so if you're there, if you don't know where that is, just crack your Bible open right in the middle, and then you kind of fish around. Uh, We're in 146, so it'll be at the very end of the Psalter there. So let me pray. Uh, Father, we bless you and we thank you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is a joy to be able to gather together with your people, to hear the praises of your people. And so, Lord, would you allow us, enable us by your spirit to continue to worship you as we hear your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you would stir in our hearts and move by your spirit to be transformed by your word. We ask this in your sovereign name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever had that really awkward experience where you have planned something out, you were hoping for something to happen, you had it all mapped out, and the very thing that you were hoping in failed you, and you realized uh, this is not going to work out well, this is not going to finish well. The very thing that you had hoped in didn't come through, and your plan failed. And it reminded me of a picture I recently saw uh, of this fellow who th- had a plan. He thought it would be a really good plan to jet ski over Niagara Falls, and his whole plan was based off the premise that his parachute would open. Sadly, uh, it didn't, and his plan failed. The very thing he was hoping in didn't work. And he died. Uh, They pulled him out of the river uh, much later. And this is what happens. Our world is full of all sorts of false hopes, these false saviors, these things that people rest in and hope in and trust in. Surely this is going to work. This is what's going to save me. This is what's going to glide me into safety. But they all inevitably will fail us. We are easily deceived into thinking that all sorts of things other than the Lord will work as good saviors, as good deliverers to solve our biggest problems. It's kind of like believing that a can of Coke is going to be sufficient to put out a forest fire or that a little umbrella is going to keep you dry in a typhoon or a hurricane. It just doesn't make sense when we realize the severity and the magnitude of the things that we go through, of the problems we're wrestling with, the issues that we're trying to navigate, the things that we're leaning on and hoping in and trusting in that this is what's going to help us, this is what's going to help me through, this is what's going to deliver me, they all fall short. Again, another way of saying it is that we're looking for saviors. We're looking for things that will rescue us, just on little things, just for this little hour, or maybe for this week, or maybe this year, or for a lifetime. We're looking for things that will save us and rescue us, maybe deliver us from the pain that we feel, or getting us out of a bad situation, or the anxiety that just won't leave us, or the pain 
and regret that constantly brews. Sometimes we're tempted to go to things like weed or whiskey in the hope that it'll wash away our pain and the regret that we have that keeps us up at night. Sometimes we're deceived into going after crystals or manifesting techniques, believing that these things will save us from a worthless life and they will get us that destiny, that significance that we really long for. Sometimes we are tempted to go to witch doctors to sage our houses and to curse others in the hope that their actions and spells will protect us and give us the justice that we crave. Sometimes if we think that if we glue a little plastic figurine of a mythical god or hang a rosary from our rearview mirror, that it will superstitiously save us from accidents as we drive and protect us as we go from A to B. Sometimes we think that if we go to the clubs and dress provocatively, that these things will save us from singleness and give us the love and acceptance that we crave for and long for. Sometimes we think that if we go to the Mandarin or McDonald's, that the food there will take away all my pain and all my anxiety. Sometimes we think that if we go to gaming, that it will save us from this gnawing sense of failure in my real life and give me this shot of success or accomplishment or meaning or purpose. We go to all these different little saviors, these little messiahs, these little things that overpromise and underdeliver. And eventually, they will all disappoint. And we will be left disillusioned and sometimes dead. This is the severity and the importance of making sure we are choosing the right Savior. And that's the question that this psalm asks us today is, who is your Savior? This is why Psalm 146 was written. It was written to spare us from the grief and the sorrow that we experience when we run after all sorts of other things rather than God to rescue us. It helps us ask the question, who am I trusting in? Who am I resting in? Who is my Savior? And if your answer isn't the Lord, then you need to trade up. You need to exchange whatever you're holding on to, whatever you're hoping in and leaning on, and shift it over to the Lord. And this whole psalm explains why that is the wisest decision you will ever make. Because the Lord himself is the only one who can truly save and satisfy in this life and in the next. And the psalmist gets right to the point. We're told right at the very beginning of Psalm 146, praise the Lord. This is the first point, if you're taking notes, is a call to sing praise the Lord. It's actually a command to sing hallelujah. That's the English translation of the Hebrew hallelujah. And this is why Psalm 146 is called a praise psalm, because just like the last five psalms in the Psalter, 145 to 150, they all begin and they all end with a command, an invitation to sing praise to the Lord. They all end and begin with hallelujah. And you probably noticed as well that in this passage, that God's personal name, Yahweh, 
the Lord, the name that he gives to his people to use that are in relationship with him, it's mentioned 11 times in just 10 verses, emphasizing God's unwavering, unchanging, loyal, steadfast love to his kids, to his children, for all those who trust in him. And you probably notice that there's four times that the word God is used, and it's always used in relationship with someone. So in verse 2, it's my God or his God or the God of Jacob in verse 5, or in verse 10, your God, O Zion. And this, again, is highlighting the fact that the one true and living God is a God who brings people into relationship with him by saving them and giving them his special name, his personal name, the Lord, Yahweh, so that they can call upon the name of the Lord because all the promises are tied to his name. All the things that he commits to doing, promises to do for all those who trust in him, he ties to his name and he gives that name to us, to all those who trust in him so that in our time of need, we can call out, we can cry out to him, knowing confidently that he hears our cry. This is in complete contrast, of course, to all the other counterfeit gods and all the other concoctions that we can come up with and prop up in his place who don't hear us. They're deaf, they're dumb, they're blind, they're inanimate. There's all these things that we kind of prop up in his place that are so inferior to him. And this is why the psalmist calls out to all of us, to all peoples in all places, calling us to praise and worship the Lord. It's hard to see this in uh, English, but in the first verse, the first command to praise the Lord is actually plural. It's an invitation for all of us. Come, let's praise the Lord. It's like saying, y'all come. Y'all come and praise the Lord. And then in verse 2, you see the response, the personal response of us as the individual worshiper, where we speak to our own souls, our own heart, and we say, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord, O oh my soul, as long as I live. The psalmist now gives an opportunity for each of us to take, yes, I'm to praise the Lord, and then speak that to my own soul. Chris, do the very thing that you're saved to do. Do the very thing that your new heart wants to do. Praise the Lord. No matter what's going on, no matter what's in your circumstance and situation, no matter how you feel, praise the Lord. And I find this just so instructive. Again and again, you can read the Psalms, you can read the different lives of saints throughout the Bible, and there is this kind of grabbing your own soul and saying, praise the Lord. You know what is right, you know what is best, despite all that is going on, despite your circumstances and your feelings. And I just feel like this is such an important word for us today. We live in a culture and in a society where it elevates feelings above the truth and tells us that we're to be led by our feelings rather than the truth. Instead of having God's truth govern and shape and direct and lead our emotions. We live in a society that doesn't just say feelings are good, but feelings are God. 
We are told that our feelings actually tell us what is true, not only for me, but also for you, so that you must celebrate my emotional truth. This is why our society, this is why and what our society keeps telling us, that our deepest feelings is what is most true about us. And to hinder that expression of those feelings, those raw emotions, is actually a form of oppression and cruelty. But nothing could be further from the truth. The truth of the matter is that tying our identity to our emotions is actually the most oppressive and enslaving thing you can do. Imagine, it's like telling someone to tie their life to a piece of driftwood so that they're chained to this incessant bobbing up and down with every wave, being at the mercy of every high and stormy gale or breathless and breathless, stagnant soul of the night, night of the soul. And being in that either still dead water or just being tossed up and down in a storm We are at the mercy of our emotions. It's cruel. And yet this is what our world advocates as being the most mature form of living, is letting your emotions have free reign and and actually identify yourself with, with whatever you feel most raw in that very moment. But that is not what the Lord says. The Lord says we, we are not to believe this lie. Instead, God's word tells us that he has given us emotions. Yeah, they're good. And we receive them because we're made in his image. And we are to use them the way he does, in conformity with truth. They are to be shaped and fostered and nurtured in accordance with truth. The truth of God's word that we are to feel the way God feels about everything. The things that he loves, we want to love. The things that he hates that are evil, we ought to also hate. And so in so doing, our emotions are conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, and it's the word of God that shapes it, that conforms it, and fosters and builds it. Sometimes we can think that emotions are something you just need to totally shut down or give absolute vent to, and we can swing between these two extremes, but God says, no, they are good gifts, but they are to be directed by truth. It's kind of like that warning light in your car. You know that light that you usually try to ignore that's flashing on your dash? It's just the engine light, and you know when that goes off that there's something going on under the hood, but you don't know exactly what, and that's how emotions work. When you're starting to feel things that you really enjoy or really don't enjoy, it's telling you something is going on under the hood in your heart, but you need the manual. You need God's word to tell you and interpret what's going on so you know how to respond rightly. And so that's why it's so important that the psalmist says, praise the Lord, O my soul. This isn't just good advice. This is critical, this is vital for our souls to take a hold of them and say, you know the goodness of God, you know what is true, despite what you feel right now, despite what your situation is like, you know the truth, praise the Lord, praise him. If we don't, what we do is we position ourselves to become very susceptible to being deceived, to being deceived into 
beginning to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt that maybe he's in control, or that he cares for you, or that he listens for you in your cry. We begin to doubt these things. We begin to resent God. If we don't allow truth to shape our emotions, we get carried away. And as a result, we are always going to be led away from the Lord, and we will always begin trusting in something else. Because we can't help it. We're human. We will always trust something. We're constantly hoping in, leaning on, trusting in something. And if we turn away from God, you're just going to fill in the blank. And it will always result in sin. And therefore, it will always result in shame and guilt. And you'll be left off in a worse situation than you started. Because this is a false savior. It doesn't actually work. God is calling us back, and this is why it's so important to follow the example of the psalmist that says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise him, sing to him as long as you live. And as a result, we are spared from so much misery. It's designed, this psalm is to help us, rescue us from going down those paths In fact, this is the second point. He goes into detail in verse three and four as to why this is a fatal choice to trust in something else, to fill in that blank, to trust in man instead of God. Verse three and four says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. The words here, uh, princes, uh, just simply means uh, someone, in a, uh, someone like a noble, someone who is in a high position of authority and influence. And you would think that, okay, this would be an ideal person to call out to, to lean on, to help me in my time of need. But the psalmist says, no, don't trust. Don't trust ultimately in those people. Uh, we have our own princes today, uh, don't we? We trust in when we hear different you know, actors or artists or athletes who have lots of things to say in the movies they play in or in the songs that they sing or in the post-game interviews that they give. And as we begin to, one of the things that we talk about with our kids is that no director is gonna spend $100 million making a movie unless they really wanna tell you something. What are they telling you? What are they saying that they think this is what you should believe? This is what you need to know. This is what will save you. It's in every song. It's in every movie. You just need to identify it. It's a, it's a false gospel. And so you need just to be alert to that. And we, we realize suddenly like, oh, they, they are telling me something. That doesn't actually line up with the scripture. Usually it's 40% true and 60% error, but it takes a little bit just to kind of pause and think about it. And when we do, we realize that all the voices in this world that are telling you to believe this, hope in this, trust here, lean on this, actually don't work out. And so here's three reasons why. Anytime you are tempted to trust in another person, trusting in a human, trusting in a man or a woman, it just, it doesn't work out. First, people are weak. We're finite creatures. Verse three says we're, uh, we're sons of man. That, that is a, a term that's referring back to the fact that Adam was the first 
man, and he was made out of the ground. That's what the word Adam means. It literally means ground, dirt, earth. Adam is a man of earth, and so he's made physically, and as a result, he's got limited capacities. He's, he's only got so much room on his plate, and we're his children. All of us are descended from Adam. We're all cousins in Adam. And as a result, we have the same limits and uh, limitations in our abilities and our capacities. And so here, the psalmist is just reminding you, so if you put your trust in a prince, you know that you're putting uh, trust, your trust and hope in someone who is very limited. They're just a, a, a weak creature made by God. And then he builds off of this fact, and he says, secondly, not only are they weak and finite creatures, but people die because of their sins. This is highlighting the fact that just a couple of chapters after Adam gets made, he falls into sin. He chooses to rebel against God in Genesis 3. And Adam, who was made out of the ground, is now cursed to die. The wages of sin is death, and he's cursed to die and return back to the ground as a result of his sin, which is why at some funerals you will hear dust to dust, ashes to ashes. We started in the ground, we end in the ground, and it's because of our sin. And so the psalmist is like, why would you hope in someone who's returning to the ground? Like, that doesn't seem like a good plan. That's, a, that's not a good long-term strategy. In fact, not only do they return to the ground, but sin, even while they're alive, distorts their willingness to fulfill those promises. So if you're hoping that someone is gonna fulfill their promises even while they're alive, even sin is at work to corrupt those desires as to whether they even fulfill them or not. It's not a good plan. Lastly, people's plans perish with them. This is why when I got married to Lisa, when we gave our vows, I vowed to love her and to cherish her and to be faithful to her till death do us part. I can't fulfill a promise after that. It's hard for me to keep fulfilling my vow when I'm six feet under. And so there's, there's, there's an expiration date to those promises. One of the most powerful promises you'll ever make on earth has an expiration date in marriage. And so this is, this is why the psalmist is like, why do we put our hope in people? Why do we put our hope ultimately in someone thinking that they will be the one to deliver us from all of our problems, from our biggest struggles? All of these are pointing to the fact that we need a better savior. We need someone to be provided for us that isn't wrestling with the same stuff that I'm wrestling with. Like if I try to rescue you, you're struggling with the same thing I am. Like I have sin, you have sin. I'm gonna die because of my sin, you're gonna die because of your sin. So it's not good for you to trust in me as your savior and it's not good for me to trust in you as my savior. And so we both need some help. We both need a better savior. And this is exactly what the psalmist is saying. There is a better savior. There is one that you can, provide, that you can lean on and trust in all the time, anywhere, at any place. And he is always faithful. And this is the third and last point here, is this is our blessed hope, the Lord God 
The Lord God is our blessed hope. He is the Savior we're looking for. Verse 5 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Blessed, that means joyful, glad, happy is the one who trusts in the Lord. This is in complete contrast to the previous person who's trusting in princes and who as a result is led into disappointment, disillusionment, and misery. But over here is someone who's trusted in the Lord, held on to his promises, holding fast to his character, and they are blessed. They're filled with joy. Not because those who trust in the Lord suddenly have all their problems just melt away like gumdrops. No, that's not the reality as a believer. You know that for you who are trusting in Christ. You know it's a hard walk. But underneath the trials is a stream of joy that the Lord provides because he's with us. And then he begins to walk through in this psalm, building a case, walking through the resume of the Lord, this amazing CV of the Lord Yahweh as to why we ought to trust in him. And the first is that he is creator. In verse six, it says that he's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, the stars, the comets, the planets, the mountains, the valleys, the elephants, the centipedes, the whales, the shrimp, everything. He made them all, and he sustains them all. And if he can sustain them, surely he can sustain you because he made you. He knows you. He knows you inside out. He knows you better than you. Surely, he's the one fully qualified to sustain you, fully qualified to save you, fully qualified of your trust in him. Not only is he the creator, but the Lord God is also the one who keeps faith. I love how that's said in verse six. He's the one who keeps faith Forever, He's the faithful God who always keeps his word, always keeps his promises. He is the promise keeper, 100%. Never has his word fallen to the ground and broken. Never has anyone ever leaned on his word and it snapped under their weight. No, he is always able to cause his word to be fulfilled. He keeps it to the very end. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Let's just look at all the ways he begins to walk through from 7, 8, 9, and 10. All these verses, he builds this case. There's nine things in particular that he says This is how the Lord keeps faith with you, keeps his promises to you, is able to save you, is worthy of your full trust and hope as a savior. Verse seven, he says, first, it's the Lord who's able to give food to the hungry. He's able to feed the hungry. He's able to feed, if you remember, two to three million Israelites that were wandering through the desert for 40 years not to mention their herds and their flocks on top of that, by sending bread from the sky and water from a rock. That's amazing. If he's able to do that, surely he can provide 
for us. He can watch over us. If he sustained them, surely he will sustain us. He is clearly able to save the starving and feed the hungry. Verse 7 goes on to say that the Lord also is the one who gives justice to the oppressed. He gives justice to the oppressed. This is similar to how in verse 9 he says he also is the one who justly punishes the wicked. It's two sides of the same coin as he is able to free and help and bring justice to the one who's being oppressed. He's also able to bring punishment to the oppressor. He's able to do both at the same time. And there's nowhere that we see this more clearly in the Old Testament is when the Lord rescues and delivers Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus 3, we read, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do and all the plagues that he brought. And after that, he that is Pharaoh will let them go. The Lord punished Egypt with plagues until it recognized that the Lord is the one true and living God, the almighty God, who is able to deliver his people who trust in him. Next, uh, verse 7 ends by saying that the Lord gives freedom to the prisoner. Again, the Lord is, is able to do this. He's able to bring freedom to those who are imprisoned. He's able to free the imprisoned. And again, a great example of this is Israel being rescued out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, it says, It is because the Lord loves you. It is keeping the oath, the promise that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God rescued Israel out of Egypt, out of the bondage and the oppression they experienced there and brought them out into the promised land where they were now free, free to praise the Lord, Free to sing hallelujah. Free to trust in the one true Savior. Not only can God give fairness and food and freedom, but in verse 8, we also see that the Lord is the one who gives sight to the blind. Uh, you'll remember a story back in 2 Kings chapter 6 where the Lord gave spiritual sight, opened the eyes of Elisha's servant to see the chariots of fire that surrounded them to protect them from an invading army that was about to attack. The Lord is able to open the eyes of the blind. And they also spiritually blinded the other army, as you remember that story, so that they didn't recognize where they were going and they were led into a trap. God is able to open eyes and close them. He is the Lord. And he is able to save his people. But it also says in verse 8 that he's the one who lifts up the bowed down, the one who is hopeless, the one who is downcast and downtrodden, the one who is in a spot, they're so discouraged, they're so distressed, they're just not really sure if there's a way out. And yet they're looking to the Lord and they're hoping in him. And it's here that we read in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hill, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who makes heaven and earth. It's the Lord who rescues the downcast. It's the one, as Isaiah 
42 verse 3 says, He is the one in which a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. God loves us when we are weak and in need of him. He loves, he's so moved by compassion. He's moved by mercy to come in at that very point to do what no one else can do and to lift us up, to be the lifter of our head, the psalmist says, and to be the one who comes along and carries us by his everlasting arms, those who are downcast and bow down, just overwhelmed with what's going on in their life and in their circumstance. And he is able to fan back into flame the flickering faith that is still there. And he will not snuff it out. He is faithful to lift them up and to save them. Verse eight ends by saying that the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord loves those who trust in him. They're only righteous because they have been forgiven by grace through faith and justified by grace through faith. They are not righteous on their own. God doesn't wait for us to kind of like fix ourselves up, clean ourselves up a little bit, And then you're like, okay, that's good enough. All right, I'll love you. That's not the way it works. God loves his people from the beginning of time. Before creation, he loves them. And then he makes a way out of love to save them, for them to be forgiven, so that when they turn to him in faith, when they turn and trust in him as Lord and Savior, then it, just like with Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says that they are declared righteous, For it says he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. We know as well from Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So when it talks about the Lord loves the righteous, it means that he loves those in whom that he has already made a way for them to be saved when we were unlovable and he's brought us close to him. But it also means that he loves when moment by moment we keep trusting in him. Moment by moment we keep leaning on him, hoping and believing all that he has said in his word. It pleases him. Uh, You would get this as a parent. If you are a parent, you understand when your child comes to you and you say, oh, this is what's happening, this is why we need to do this, and they believe you, it pleases you. And when they're like, nah, that's not true. You're like, what? And it doesn't please you. Well, this is what's going on. God loves us. His love doesn't change. It's unchangeable. And yet, he loves, it pleases him when we trust in him, when we believe his word. And he loves, he loves the righteous. Verse 9 goes on to highlight how the Lord also keeps his promise as a perfect savior by protecting the sojourner. By protecting the sojourner. We can think back to David. We were recently talking about David and how David, whether he was in his own land or outside of his land, he was basically running as a fugitive and felt like a sojourner in his own country. Or we can think of others like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who were sojourners in the land of Babylon. We can think of how God watched over them, provided for them, protected them as sojourners, as exiles. We can think of Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews and how God 
protected all of those sojourners that were scattered all throughout the Persian Empire and from the evil plot of Naaman to create genocide toward the Jews and how God protected them. We see all throughout the Old Testament God's heart for the poor, the oppressed, and the sojourner. God is able, more than able, to rescue and to save and protect the sojourner. But he also sustains the widow and the orphan. We see this here in verse 9. He is the one who upholds the widow and the orphan. There's many spots that we can go to in the Old Testament, but you might remember that story in 2 Kings chapter 4 where God sustains a widow and her two children and rescues them from being greatly in debt and enslaved by making the little oil that she had left in her jar run and flow and flow so that she was able to fill up other jars that she had and all the other jars that she had borrowed from her neighbors, she filled them all up with oil and as soon as they were all filled, the oil stopped. And as a result, she was able to sell that oil and live off its proceeds and her family was saved. And God is able to uphold and sustain the widow and the orphan. Lastly, the Lord reigns as king. He is able to save because he reigns as king. He's able to fulfill his word and promises to his people because he lives and reigns forever. I love this passage in Jeremiah 10.10. It says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. In Psalm 47 verse 7 it says, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. And that's what we're doing right now. He reigns as the almighty king over all of his creation. And he is able, he is powerful enough to actually accomplish these promises to us as people. But you notice he's also the everlasting king. He reigns forever. Which means he's not only able to do it today, he's able to do it tomorrow. And next week. And next month. And several decades from now. And when we are on our deathbed, he is able to be faithful to us and carry out all of his promises to us, even as he brings us into the next life. He's faithful. In all these ways, the Lord God proves over and over and over again, he is the perfect savior. He is the one in whom all our trust should be in. But you think this would be enough. You think this would be enough, that this is all that God would need to do in order to evoke our trust in him. But he goes further. He goes further by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to actually come and fulfill this very Psalm 146 in all the ways that we've just described, in a way that is far more greater than God had ever displayed and ever accomplished prior to that. Jesus comes as the one who is the true and greatest of all saviors. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, we read, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to, glo to glory, to God for his glory. Because Jesus has come and fulfilled all the promises of God, we're able to say amen. God keeps all of his promises because Jesus is the great promise fulfiller. He comes and fulfills all the promises of God. And he's also a great creator as well. In John 1, we read, In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the very Word of God, that the Father spoke all things into existence. Jesus Christ was co-creator with his father in the very beginning, making everything out of nothing. And as a result, God, because he is the great creator, he he is all-powerful, because Jesus Christ is the great promise fulfiller, we see in all the same ways that we had just looked at, that the psalmist walks through in 146, that Jesus comes and fulfills them in a way that is absolutely beautiful and perfect. Let's look at them really quickly. Jesus, he's the one who can also give food. He's also also the one who can feed the hungry. He himself chose to fast and be hungry, even though he miraculously can feed 5,000 with a few fish and some bread. But what's more of that is that he himself is the very bread of heaven that comes to us who are starving and languishing in our sin, and comes and gives us himself that we may eat by faith and live. What bread is like this bread? Who can feed us like this Savior? What other Savior out there can do this? We're just getting started here. The Lord Jesus Christ is also the one who sets the prisoner free like no other. Not only did he literally and miraculously free Peter out of a prison cell that he would go free, But Jesus Christ personally bound himself onto a cross to carry our sins, to pay the death penalty for them, that we might be spiritually freed from the slavery that we had to sin and death, that we might be freed to trust in him, freed to praise him, freed to sing hallelujah to him. Can any other savior do that? No. Jesus Christ gives sight to the blind. Jesus Christ, think of this. I was just thinking about this. Jesus Christ, he's the all-knowing, all-seeing one, chooses to come and live nine months blind in his mother's womb so that he could eventually be born, that he might give sight to the blind. It's amazing. Nowhere in history, nowhere in all the Old Testament was anyone ever given Sight, physical sight. No one was ever healed. No blind person was ever healed with sight until Jesus shows up. Oh my goodness, please read Luke 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. I mean, Jesus is just doing miracles left, right, and center. He's giving sight to the blind here and here and here. I mean, it just says he healed them all. It's just amazing. Jesus is the one, he's the only one who gives sight to the blind. Luke 7, when his cousin asks him, hey, should we be looking for a better savior, a different Messiah? Jesus says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. You figure it out, John. (laughs) Who can do this? Who is able to do this? Only Jesus. But the greatest sight that Jesus came to give was not to open the eyes in our head, but to open the eyes of our heart so that we could truly see him for who he truly is, 
the Lord, God, and Savior. John 3, 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless he gives you new eyes and a new heart, you can't even find your way. You need him to give you sight. And Jesus alone is the one who gives it. Not only does he give sight to the blind and food to the hungry and free the prisoner, but he's also the one who lifts up those who are bowed down and lifts them up like no other. Sure, in Matthew 12, verse 20, it tells us that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, faithfully fulfilled that passage in Isaiah that we read earlier, caring for the bruised reed whose faith was a smoldering wick. He was able to care for them, lift them up, and sustain their faith, but he went further. He's not only the one who is the lifter of their head, not only the one who lifted up those who were downcast and downtrodden, but he was able to make a way for them to be raised up, and I mean raised up, I mean raised up out of the grave, raised up to resurrected life. This is the one who really lifts up the bow down. John 11 says, Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is, though you might get buried, you're still gonna live forever and ever in his presence. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is, you will live forever and ever and ever and ever. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus is the one who raises up the downcast like no one else. And he loves the righteous. He loves the righteous in that he is the one who went after us when we weren't righteous because he loved us then. Romans 8, sorry, Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us when we were unlovable, when there was nothing to love about us. He loved us. And then he saved us and forgave us and gave us his perfect report card of a record of perfectly loving and trusting his father. And he shared that with us so that now we are right in God's sight. We are declared righteous. We are justified when we trust in him, when we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so he loves the righteous. And what about sojourners? Does Jesus care about immigrants? Yes, he does. Yeah, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says that all who trust in Jesus are spiritual sojourners and exiles while they make their way through their time on earth. Since we, according to Philippians 3.20, we have our citizenship in heaven, and from it we await a savior, Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, during our sojourning on earth, Jesus Christ promises us as sojourners to never leave us nor forsake us in Hebrews 13, verse 5, to be always with us to the very end of the age in Matthew 28, verse 20. And this is a great comfort to us as we make our way through a very difficult world and witnessing of Christ, boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus as the only true Savior to a lost world. But this is also very encouraging to people who are 
physical sojourners, who are immigrants, who are often susceptible to being taken advantage of when they come to a foreign land, not having the cultural awareness of what to do, what not to do, being susceptible to scams, being taken advantage of, maybe not having all the different benefits that comes with citizenship. And so those who trust in the Lord can have peace to know that God is with them no matter what land that they're in. God is there to protect them. And as I've had many good conversations with many of us, many of you in our church family who have come from other lands, you and your own testimony can testify of how God has watched over you as a sojourner in this land. God is faithful. He is faithful to those who trust in him. And the Lord is faithful to sustain the widow and the orphan as well. The Lord Jesus Christ specifically, you know, sometimes we forget that Jesus' mom was a widow and that Jesus himself was probably orphaned when he was a teen or an adolescent. You'll remember that the last we hear about his adoptive dad, Joseph, was when he was about 12. And then we don't know exactly what happened between that and when Jesus shows up on the scene, beginning his earthly ministry around 30. And we know at some point his dad passed away in there. We know Jesus knows what it's like to be at home without a dad, to be fatherless, to care for a mom who's a widow, who's a single parent. He knows that. He knows what that's like. And he cared for his mom. Even to his dying breath, when he's hanging on the cross, he ensured that John, that John the apostle would take care of his mom. He wanted to make sure his mom was taken care of. Jesus knows how to take care of widows and orphans. But even more than that, Jesus, in a way that far exceeds anything that could ever happen on earth, what Jesus does is make a way for all widows and orphans to be brought into God's family, back into a family again. Through Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we get connected to Jesus the Son, so that as a result, God becomes our father and we become his children and we're adopted into his family through Jesus Christ, the eldest brother. But not only that, Jesus comes as the divine groom. He's the great husband who comes after his bride, the church. And as a result, because the church, we as believers trust in Jesus Christ as the groom, then we are married to Christ all those who trust in him, whether widow or single or unmarried, we are all able to be wed to Christ. And he betrothes us to himself. He it becomes engaged to us by pouring out his spirit into our new hearts when we trust in Christ and promises to return and come back for us in the clouds to be with him, to bring us into the wedding, a wedding that will end all weddings and a reception that will end all receptions. And it will be an opportunity for all of us, no matter what situation we are in life, whether widowed, whether orphaned, he is able to bring us into the family of God. And we are able to experience marriage with Jesus Christ, a wedding and a marriage that will last into eternity. Yes, Jesus knows how to sustain the widow and the orphan. But Jesus also is the one who is the only one who is able to bring ultimate justice to the oppressed and punishment to the wicked. We read a very 
sobering passage in Matthew where Jesus brings ultimate judgment at the final judgment. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He's the king. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one, from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When Jesus was here on earth, yes, he, he, he rescued and saved people on an earthly way and helping them get out of oppressive situations. But what we're talking about is the final judgment here. What we need to see is that Jesus alone is the one who can save us from this. No one can improve upon the justice of Jesus Christ. No one can improve upon the justice of Jesus Christ. All the wrongs that were ever committed, all the sins that were ever done, every evil thought and action and word will all be accounted for and all dealt with by Jesus in one of two ways, in one of two places. Either the sins will be dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ where God poured out his wrath on his son, on our sins to pay for our sins in our place, or it will be dealt with in hell, in the eternal lake of fire, in which God will pour out his wrath by Jesus Christ on those who never repent of their sins and who embrace their sins and love their false messiahs and love their false saviors. And they will experience eternal punishment. Those are the two options. All of our sins will be dealt with in one of those two places. And this is why Jesus gives us this psalm, Psalm 146, now, ahead of time, before it's too late, so that we can turn, so that we can trust in him. The very one who will sit on that throne and bring judgment is the very one who came a lot earlier, 2,000 years ago, to make a way for us to be saved so that we can go to the right and not to the left, so that we can be the ones who are the sheep who inherit the kingdom and not the goats who are sent away. This is the opportunity. This is why this whole psalm is written so that we will know which savior to choose in the time that we have. We can be spared from such a judgment by turning to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and receiving eternal life. Have you done this? Have you done this already? Are you ready to meet Jesus the King? Because you will. He's King. This is the last point. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns forever. When Jesus rose from the dead, he said in Matthew 28, 
Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Everyone, everyone's gonna stand before him. He is now ascended to the right hand of the throne of God as the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is king. We will face him. Every human will stand before Jesus and give an account. Have you trusted in him? Have you looked to him as your savior? Have you forsaken all the others? All the other fill in the blanks? Everything else that you're tempted to rush to and run to, to lean on and hope in, this will deliver me. This will rescue me. Have you set them all aside? Are you done with them? You, you know they don't work. You know they don't work. Have you turned to Jesus? He is the only Savior. He is worthy of all of our trust. He has come, and he will come again. And we want to ask before he comes, who is your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Psalm 146 that tells us that it's, it's just not worth trusting in the things of this earth and people, but there's one that we can trust in, we can trust in you and the son you have sent as our savior and as our Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and being the perfect promise fulfiller, for showing and proving to us that you are worthy of all of our trust and you are worthy of all of our praise. And the way that this psalm began, it ends. It calls us to praise you. It calls us to praise you because you are worthy of praise. No matter what we're feeling, no matter what our circumstance, you are worthy of praise for all that you are and the Savior that you have proven yourself to be. Father, I pray that everyone here would not leave until they have settled with you. Lord God, I pray that they would turn to you as their one Lord and Savior, that they may be free to praise you and to praise your name forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name.